I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So we don't typically on the show try to tackle something really complicated that spanned like a century. <laughs> it's That's- tricky. It's difficult to do. Normally what we do is choose an isolated piece that's sort of emblematic of the larger story and put that smaller piece into the context of the bigger story. That is really hard to do with today's subject, which is the Highland Clearances, because the Highland Clearances were a long and very complicated and really messy series of evictions in the Highlands and Western Islands of Scotland Tenant farmers were forced from their homes to make way for sheep pastures. And the clearances were at their peak from 1780 to 1855, but they were really part of ongoing changes in the Highlands and elsewhere, really, that started long before that and ended long after that. And they're also one of those subjects that a lot of people, especially Scots and people of Scottish descent, already have their minds made up about. Uh, even though there continues to be really extensive debate among historians about how to exactly interpret what happened. And in a lot of retellings, the Highland clearances are presented basically as nothing more than the really greedy schemings of wealthy landlords who callously strong-armed their tenants off their land in an effort to just eradicate Highland culture. Some of that is not quite accurate. And overall, it's just... uh 
a lot more complicated than that. And any little isolated piece that we might pick to try to talk about and make it be more emblematic of the whole would just reinforce that oversimplified story in this case. So, uh, since the reality is a lot more complicated than that, and to be clear, there are definitely tragic and unjust aspects to the clearances, they were really a lot more complicated than a, a little piece. They're even more complicated than our our 30-minute-ish podcast today. Uh, but we're going to try to to give a better sense of of the complexities of what happened. We're going to start with a bit about what life was like in the Scottish Highlands before the start of the clearances. By the early to mid-1700s, the highlands and lowlands of Scotland were dramatically different in terms of how people lived and worked. The highlands are the northwestern portion of the country and are sometimes also grouped in with the islands off of the western coast. The Scottish highlands were mostly rural, but the lowlands, or southeastern portion of the country, were far more urban. In a very general sense, people in the lowlands of Scotland often spoke English and were culturally more similar to England, while people in the highlands of Scotland typically spoke Scots Gaelic and had their own unique Gaelic culture. Scottish Highland society followed the clan system, which was a semi-feudal militaristic system in which each clan was ruled by a chief. The chief managed a largely agricultural society, and that society was really intensely connected through, through both family ties and a sense of clan loyalty. And to be clear, there are also lowland clans, but since the lowlands had become so much more urban, they weren't really following the whole economic and social system that we're about to talk about. Highland society was highly stratified. At the top were the clan chiefs and their aristocratic family connections, and then below that was an affluent middle class made up of taxmen who managed tax, which were subdivided pieces of land that were worked by tenant farmers. These tenant farmers were essentially the peasant class, referred to as cotters or smallholders, and they paid rent to the taxmen either in farm labor, goods from that farm, or sometimes even money. And then the taxmen then passed that revenue up to the chief. There was really not a lot of social or economic mobility in this system. The clan chiefs and other members of the upper class were often living in castles, while the cotters were living in turf or clay and wattle huts that had thatch roofs. And particularly for the peasantry, this was a really difficult life. Most tenant families were living at a subsistence level. The highland soil also was not great for growing crops. And the highlands of Scotland saw serious food shortages and famines over and over in the 17th and 18th centuries. Even when there wasn't a huge famine going on, a lot of times individual families and more isolated regions faced a series of hardships, thanks to everything from crop failures to disease. On average, crops failed in the highlands every third year. That's a really high rate of failure. That's rough. Yeah, especially when you're not you're not producing enough to be able to to preserve things for later. And at the same time, prior to the 18th century, clan leaders tended to take a paternalistic attitude toward the clan's tenants. So the clan chief could expect loyalty from the rest of the clan, including when it came to mustering a military force, and the clan members could expect help if they met some kind of hardship. In a time of famine or these crop failures, the chief might defer the tenant's rent or provide food from a common store. 
Naturally, in the face of such a difficult and uncertain life, people who had the means often moved out of the highlands of Scotland. And this was typically true among the middle class who sent their sons outside the highlands for their education and their future work. Families also immigrated to the lowlands or to other countries, including the American colonies in Australia, if they were able to scrape up the financial means to do so. In earlier times, it might have been possible to do this through an indenture, but by this point in history, in the 17th and 18th century, that was not so much an option anymore. Sometimes wealthier clans would also buy land in the colonies or in other parts of the British Empire and then persuade groups of tenants to emigrate there to work that newly acquired land. This exodus got much worse after the end of the Jacobite Rising of 1745. And we've talked about the rebellion in a prior episode of the show, but briefly, a number of Scottish clans backed Charles Edward Stuart, known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, in a rebellion intended to supplant the House of Hanover and return the House of Stuart to the British throne. The rebellion ended on April 16, 1746, with the Jacobite rebels' defeat at the Battle of Culloden. After the end of the rebellion, British troops moved through Scotland in a really brutal effort to roust out all the rebels and anyone else who had been supporting the Jacobite cause, and the result was devastating. More than a thousand Highland Scots were killed, and in some cases, entire clans were decimated or forced into exile. There were already disarming acts in place forbidding the ownership of firearms among Highland Scots, and new legislation incorporated the Dress Act of 1746, The Dress Act forbade men to wear Highland dress outside of the context of military service. A lot of times this is interpreted as not being allowed to wear tartan at all, and that is not quite accurate. The Heritable Jurisdictions Act of 1747 also stripped clan chiefs of their already waning judicial and military power. These actions were motivated by both pragmatism and prejudice. Multiple Scottish clans had just mounted an armed rebellion against the House of Hanover and the British Crown. This was clearly a threat to the monarchy and the stability of the kingdom. Simultaneously, the fact that the Highlands were so rural, so remote, and home to their own unique semi-feudal society meant that they were viewed as uncivilized, archaic, backward, and in need of modernization and assimilation with a more English way of life. Afterward, things got a lot harder for everyday people left in the highlands. The clans still existed as family and as social units, but not nearly so much as as an economic and political system. The system that replaced it had a lot of similarities, though. Former clan chiefs became private landowners, and even though they no longer had the same judicial and military power that they'd had before, in a lot of places they were still the most powerful people in terms of their social and political positions. Taxmen were replaced by factors who did a very similar job managing subdivided parcels of land. And then the peasantry still lived on small rented holdings, which were commonly known as crofts. They became more often known as crofters in their rented farms, as they had before, combined enclosed areas for growing crops and common grazing land. No longer bound by loyalty to the clan, landlords started raising rents and having less of a paternalistic attitude toward their tenants. Some became increasingly focused on profits, regardless of how that affected people living and working on their land. As this was happening among former Highland clan leadership, 
English and lowland Scottish landlords with holdings in the highlands were similarly becoming more and more focused on using their land for the most profit as well. Happening in tandem with all of this were efforts to reform and modernize the highlands. Even when these efforts were well-intended, they tended to bring more chaos and displacement than actual improvement. This included an expansion in cattle farming, which caused tenant families to be displaced at least as far back as the 1730s. People who had survived Culloden and its aftermath started leaving Scotland in bigger numbers, looking for a better life elsewhere. People's reasons and how much autonomy they had in this was really all over the spectrum. Everything from landlords who decided to sell what was left of their estates and immigrate with their families, leaving their tenants to make their own way, to desperately poor tenant farmers agreeing to work on their landlord's new venture in Australia because they were coerced into it or felt like they simply had no other choice. In 1773, James Boswell and Samuel Johnson toured the highlands and the western islands of Scotland, and they wrote about the dissolution of clan loyalties, increasingly mercenary landlords, and a crumbling social system that was threaded through with abject poverty. The clearances started a little less than a decade later, and we're going to talk about those after we first have a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. 
Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the 1770s, it was clear that the highlands and islands of Scotland had a range of very real economic and social problems, and there was huge disagreement among the ruling class over exactly what to do about it. Traditionalists thought the highlands could continue to function as a system of landlords and tenants with a few changes and improvements, like, for example, cutting out the middlemen and having tenants work directly with their landlords rather than going through factors. But otherwise, a lot of traditionalists thought that Highland society had been working the way that it was, virtually unchanged, for centuries. There was no reason to expect it could not just continue indefinitely. On the other side were the improvers, who thought the Highland way of life was obviously doomed and needed to be replaced with some other system entirely. Opinions were all over the map about exactly what that other system should be. And all of this was happening during both the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment, which were bringing huge changes to Europe and other parts of the world and were naturally influencing all of these opinions. By the 1770s, the price of wool started to rise. And by 1780, the Highland landlords realized that their land could be put to much more profitable use through sheep farming than through raising other livestock or crops. Instead of being home to collectives of tenant farmers who lived on and worked the land, the estates would become mostly pasture land. The homes and the other associated buildings would be destroyed to make way for grazing sheep. In the aftermath of the Jacobite Rising and the events that followed it, some of these estates were already vacant, or nearly so. In these cases, the clearances proceeded very quietly without attracting much attention. Or landlords waited until their last few tenants' leases were up, and then they just went on from there. But a lot of landlords still had hundreds or thousands of tenants, and starting around 1780, they started systematically evicting them as they converted their tenant farms to sheep farms. At first, a lot of these landlords expected that their tenants would relocate elsewhere in the highlands and islands. The most popular destination was the Scottish coast, where people could work in the fishing or kelp industries. 
Of course, fishing was a lot more dangerous than working on a farm, and kelp processing was hard, and it was unpleasant work. In the kelp industry, seaweed was processed through burning to produce things like iodine and an alkaline product that was used in the manufacture of things like glass and soap. Kelp processing had a pretty short working season, but it required a lot of labor during that time. So to most tenants, this move to the coast was a huge step down, on top of being uprooted from land that their families had often been on for generations. Some landlords also helped to resettle their tenants, especially those who were old or sick. Others offered to pay for passage out of Scotland to other parts of the British Empire, Some forgave any rent that their tenants still owed or bought any livestock or saleable goods that the tenants had to offer from their farms. So while being displaced to another part of the country or another country entirely to work in a different industry would have been difficult and unpleasant. And leaving the land that you and your ancestors had worked for generations could be emotionally devastating. But these early clearances were really not a matter of just turning people out of their homes with no resources and no thought about what they should do. Even in these earlier years, though, there was significant resistance to the clearing of tenant farms and the introduction of sheep. In 1792, families who had been evicted from farms in Rossshire and Sutherland rose up in what came to be known as the Rossshire Sheep Riots, which included rounding up thousands of sheep and trying to drive them out of the area. The 42nd Regiment, also known as the Black Watch, was deployed to restore order. 1792 was nicknamed the Year of the Sheep. As the clearances progressed, landlords generally put less and less thought and fewer resources into what to do with their evicted tenants. One issue was that even though there were these evictions going on and people had been leaving the highlands since long before the Jacobite Rising, the total highland population was actually increasing. Even in the early years of the clearances, the population was rising faster than the economy was growing. So the labor pool was getting bigger as the need for labor was getting smaller. This started to trickle down to landlords, having few resources and less money available to try to resettle or redistribute their tenants, especially because some of them didn't feel like they could evict their excess labor pool. One of the largest clearances started in 1807, and it actually lasted until 1821. Known as the Sutherland Clearance, this displaced about 15,000 people from the estate of English landowner George Granville Levison Gower, Marquess of Stafford, who would later become the first Duke of Sutherland. His estates were, at that time, likely the wealthiest in all of Scotland. While his money funded the clearance, it was his wife, Elizabeth Gordon, who was really the one pushing for sheep farming. Patrick Seller was the estate's factor and was the one in charge of converting the estate and dealing with the tenants. Although the Sutherland clearance did include resettling people to the coast to work kelp, Seller became notorious for his callous and brutal treatment of the tenants. This treatment got worse as time went on, When the tenants resisted moving, he and his men threatened them, destroyed their possessions, and burned down their homes and crops. While clearing tenants from land in Strathnaver, he allegedly had a house burned down with somebody still inside. Seller was arrested and charged with a number of crimes, including arson and culpable homicide, but was ultimately found not guilty. 
The Sutherland clearances overlapped a major event that influenced how the later clearances progressed, and that was the end of the Napoleonic Wars. The incident in which Sellers' men reportedly burned down a house with someone inside it took place in 1814. In 1815, the Napoleonic Wars ended, which had a huge effect on the Highland economy. The price of fish started to drop, and the kelp industry completely collapsed due to cheaper and better products from elsewhere in Europe. And the price of wool started to drop as well. With all their money-making industries no longer making so much money, even the landlords who had intended to help resettle their tenants or to invest in coastal industries didn't have the money to do it anymore, and the kelp industry just no longer existed for them to invest in at all. Evictions became faster and more aggressive, with far less help offered to the evicted tenants. In 1814, Sellers' treatment of the Sutherland tenants had been pretty well outside the norm, but after 1815, the clearances in general started to look a lot more like what had happened in Sutherland. By the 1830s, the wool industry had become so powerful in the highlands that sheep farmers had leverage over their landlords, doing things like refusing to sign a new lease unless the landlord evicted the remaining tenants and converted their former acreage into sheep pasture. Even though the price of wool was falling, wool was still more profitable than anything else they might use that land for. Most landlords couldn't afford to lose their sheep farmers and ultimately gave in to their demands. The 1830s were also marked by food shortages and famine in the highlands and islands as a result of the displacement and changes in land use. Some of the most infamous clearances took place in the 1840s, with some of that infamy stemming from newspapers publishing stories that were very sympathetic to the evicted tenants. In Glencalvey in 1845, massive clearances were publicized by free church ministers who were critical of what was happening. These articles really focused on the plight of the families and the idea that they'd been living and farming there for generations. The Glencalvey story was picked up by the Times, largely in connection to debates that were going on in Parliament over assistance programs for the poor in Scotland. Another clearance in Strathconan played out with similar sympathy in the press in the 1840s as well, with the evicted tenants portrayed as destitute, devastated, and meekly compliant with their landlords. So when it came to that meekly compliant with their landlords part, that wasn't exactly true. Tenants resisted being evicted all through the Highland clearances, including Strathconan. Usually things followed a predictable pattern. Someone would show up to serve an order of removal. Tenants, usually the women, would say they'd refuse to go, mocking the person serving the order and sometimes tearing that order up in front of his face. Things would escalate from there, with the sheriff arriving with a posse, often very early in the morning, to evict everyone by force. If people still refused to go, the sheriff would seek military help. Usually, the threat of troops being deployed would prompt people to leave, but in at least 10 cases, troops really did arrive on the scene to force people to go. The last of the major clearances were over by about 1850. Although people continued to be evicted to make way for other uses of the land that they were leasing until at least the 1880s. Some of these removals were still quite sizable. Between 1851 and 1857, about 5,000 Highland Scots, most of them living in severe poverty, were relocated to Australia to try to address a labor shortage during the gold rush there. 
And then throughout all of this, food shortages and famine continued in the highlands, including a famine that started around 1846 and was caused by the same potato blight that had struck Ireland the year before. The aftermath of the clearances actually went on much longer. And we're going to get into that after we first pause for another sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping, and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear, upfront pricing. And no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary Evolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After clearing the highlands of Scotland to make way for sheep, the sheep themselves did not last for very long. The price of wool continued to fall after it had started falling in 1815. Eventually, sheep farmers in Australia and New Zealand were producing much higher quality goods for much less money. And in some cases, these sheep were even being raised by people who had been displaced in favor of sheep during the highland clearances. As wool became less and less profitable, land use in the highlands changed once again, with deer forest used for hunting, replacing pasture land used for raising sheep. There are still plenty of sheep farms in the highlands, but overall, landlords who had invested all their money into sheep production didn't ultimately see many returns on that investment. Although the population of the highlands had been increasing in the early years of the clearances, as the evictions became larger and more aggressive, the highland population finally did start to decline. Soon, there were more highland Scots living outside of Scotland than living in the highlands. And by 1850, the highlands of Scotland had one of the lowest population densities in all of Europe. Entire communities, some of which had been there for centuries, were gone. At the same time, it's a bit of a misconception that most of the people who emigrated from Scotland during the clearances were people who had been evicted. While there were definitely crofters whose landlords either paid their way or offered other assistance to emigrate out of the country, most of the people who made that voyage were people with more financial means. In historical documents from the time, people gave reasons for emigrating that included increasing rents or the idea that life would be better somewhere else. The clearances were definitely part of the idea of a better life elsewhere. But most people questioned about their reasons for emigrating didn't say it was because they had been evicted. By the end of the clearances, overall, the Highlands had no more factors. They had no more mid-sized tenants who were subletting their lands to other farmers. Most of the former Highland clan leaders were also gone from the country. And what was left were predominantly sheep farms, deer parks, and a much, much smaller population of crofters who continued to work on small parcels of rented farmland. Meanwhile, Highland Scots who emigrated from Scotland often faced discrimination and prejudice wherever they settled, which tends to be the case any time a large population of people immigrates to a new place. At the same time, as fiction, poetry, music, news reporting, and historical writing began to take a more nostalgic view of Highland culture and present its end as a tragic loss, the general perception of Highland Scots started to shift outside the Highlands. 
No longer were the Highlands viewed as uncouth and backward. Clan culture and Highland traditions became heavily romanticized. The Highlands and Highland Scots became emblematic of all of Scotland, and traditions from the Highlands became a core part of Scottish national identity. I cannot exaggerate. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of novels about Scotland before and during the clearances, and overwhelmingly they present the Highland clan way of life in a really romanticized way. The thing that people probably would come to mind most is Outlander, uh, but I mean that that whole genre goes back, you know, more than a hundred years easily. And this is often written to provoke a sense of injustice and outrage over what had happened. Um, also, the the part where the Highlands of Scotland became emblematic of all of Scotland reminds me of when we when I was in college and we had a visiting professor from Scotland. And in the first day of class, he, I don't remember where precisely he was from, but, but he told us where he was from and showed us a picture of it, which looked like you know, a major city. And he was like, when I, when I say Scotland, you are probably thinking the highlands of Scotland. I am from the lowlands of Scotland and it looks like this. <laughs> and we were all like, really? <laughs> where are the pastures? <laughs> Uh, there have been intentional efforts to preserve the Highland culture that existed before the clearances, including songs, customs, and languages. And although there has been a revival in Scots Gaelic in the 20th and 21st centuries, several dialects of Scots Gaelic that existed before the clearances have been lost. In the 1880s, the remaining crofters in the Highlands and Islands started protesting increasing rents, evictions, and just the general lack of civil and land rights. Like, a a lack of tenant protections had been part of this whole process, and they still did not really have a lot of protection as tenants. This unrest became really violent at times, and as a result, the Napier Commission, more formally known as the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Condition of Crofters and Cotters in the Highlands and Islands, was established in 1883. After studying the issue, the commission published a report on the situation in 1884, and in that same year, the Highlanders established the Highland Land Law Reform Association. The Crofters Party was established soon after, and in 1886, four members of that party were elected to Parliament. In 1886, Parliament passed the Crofters Holdings Act, which was the first of several pieces of legislation meant to make the crofting system more fair and to offer crofters protections from things like unreasonable evictions and unfair rents. By the 1880s, historians had also started to write about what had happened during the clearances. And historians' interpretations of what happened have varied wildly since then. The historiography of the Highland clearances is its own intriguing subject. And if you're not familiar with that term, historiography generally means the writing of history, but it also more broadly includes the theory and history of that writing itself. There are extensive documents from the Highland Clearances that still survive today, far, far more than any one historian could really read through, synthesize, and analyze in a lifetime. But at this point, there's even more historical writing about the Clearances. In the words of historian Eric Richards, who has written numerous books on the Clearances, quote, the historiography of the clearances and the way it has been constructed has become a subject with its own fascination, notably for historians of the public memory with a postmodernist bent. 
For a long time, and really maybe even still, the most popular book on the Highland Clearances was written by popular historian John Preble, and that was first published in 1963. He'd previously written a book called Culloden, which was about the Jacobite Rising of 1745. So Preble's interpretation of both the Jacobite Rising and the Highland Clearances was that they were emblematic of Scottish or Highland nationalism. And in the book, The Highland Clearances, he focuses primarily on greedy, scheming, callous landlords and not really on any of the other factors that were involved in the clearances. In the decades after these books came out, organizations like the Communist Party of Great Britain and a range of working class organizations were starting to focus their efforts related to labor rights and social issues in Scotland in a more nationalist direction. These books fit right into that sentiment, and these social influences and John Preble's works worked together to cement the idea that both the Jacobite Rising and the Highland Clearances were part of ongoing systemic oppression of Scotland and helped inspire Scottish nationalism. So I'm I'm glad that popular histories exist and that popular historians are writing these histories because for a lot of people that's their introduction into historical thought. Uh but professional historians have been strongly critical of Preble's work, pointing out instances of cherry picking the source material and presenting a lot of historical events without their proper context. For example, the Highland Clearances largely ignores the fact that the landlords themselves were existing in and responding to a whole range of other social and economic factors. They didn't just come up with the idea of changing their land over to sheep out of nowhere. And events that made the clearances so much worse, like the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the collapse of the kelp industry and the falling wool prices, were sort of outside the landlord's control, but also had a huge effect on how things progressed. And there are so many questions that historians don't agree on how to answer regarding the Highland Clearances. Are the clearances their own unique event, or are they just part of a pattern of clearances happening all over Europe during the Industrial Revolution? How much was really influenced by anti-Highland prejudice, and how much was a matter of simple economics? How much did the overall underdevelopment of the Scottish Highlands and the fundamental problems that really did exist in the Highland economy influence the progress of the clearances and their outcome? The oral history is full of burned-down cottages and farms, but does the archaeological evidence really support that? And how did earlier and later clearances, some of which extended into the lowlands, compare to the famous ones? Did the clearances really play a role in Scottish nationalism, or did that really come from fictional interpretations and later historical writing? And these kinds of questions just go on and on and continue to be debated. <laughs> you can read 10 different books and find 10 different conclusions about how to interpret all of this. Regardless of all that, though, historians generally do agree that in the end, the Highland clearances didn't really do anyone any good. They forcibly displaced Highland Scots out of their homes, sometimes moving them into other industries, most of those industries later collapsing. And then those who immigrated out of the country usually endured appalling conditions aboard ship and then prejudice and sometimes poverty at their new destination as well. And then the motivation for doing all of this didn't even turn out to be profitable for the people who ordered the land to be cleared in the first place. So overall, it did not go well for pretty much anyone involved. Uh, we mentioned the Highland Clearances really briefly at the end of our episode on the Jacobite Rising. And after that, we got an email from a listener who said that uh, her grandmother, who was 
uh, from Scotland had described the clearances as basically the English rolling through the highlands and murdering everyone. And like, that's still a common perception. And it's that's part is not accurate. But the other thing that that really completely leaves out is that a lot of the landlords in question and some of the factors and some of the incoming sheep farmers were themselves Scots. Not all of them necessarily Highland Scots, but some were Highland Scots. Like there were Highland Scots, Lowland Scots, and English landlords, all part of all of this. So it's definitely not something that can be presented as simply as England did this, which is a thing that we have heard in our mail uh, related to this issue before. Speaking of mail, do you have some? I sure do. It is from Bethany. Uh, Bethany is, wrote about an episode that Holly actually researched, but a, a thing I said in it, and we've gotten a couple of emails on the subject. And so Bethany says, hi, Holly and Tracy talks about being a relatively new listener and loving the podcast. Uh, then Bethany says, I just listened to your most recent episode, The Minuscule Science of Antony von Leeuwenhoek. I found it pretty interesting and entertaining, especially when one of you, I think it was Tracy, mentioned a book you used to have as a kid that showed gooseneck barnacles growing into flying geese. I laughed a lot and then proceeded to consult the Google in hopes of finding the book or something like it. My search was semi-successful. I found a digital copy of The Herbal or General History of Plants. Uh, Imagine that with some delightful 16th century spelling because that's what it has uh, by John Gerard from 1545 to 1612. Uh, And there's a link to that. I also found a couple of blog posts and an article on the website Wired, which is weird because isn't that like a tech magazine that talks about early thoughts on geese coming from barnacles. In the Wired article, they talk about another writer from 1751 who was criticizing the Royal Society of London for allowing one of their members to publish something that backed the idea of barnacle geese. I've included a few links so you can read more for yourselves if you would like, though they may not be the best of the best resources. The digital copy of The Herbal is pretty cool. By the way, the description and discussion of the barnacle goose is in the very last chapter. Uh, It's a little difficult to read, but still pretty rad. Barnacles are one of my favorite marine organisms because of how they feed. They're so beautiful waving their, quote, legs around trying to catch a meal. Thanks again. You ladies are great. Bethany. Uh, Bethany also notes that there's a species of goose called the barnacle goose that made the search process a little more challenging. Thank you, Bethany. So uh, we got a couple emails about the story. And so to clarify, the book that I was looking at, I I am not sure whether it was um, an old science textbook because uh, in, in our family bookshelf, um, we had a few old textbooks that I think had been bought at a yard sale or something, or if it was a science book for kids that we bought at like a scholastic book sale or something similar. Either way, it was a book intended for kids that was a science and science history book. And this whole barnacle goose thing was in a section on people used to think it worked this way. And it talked about the idea that uh, that maggots spontaneously generated out of meat, which I could understand why people would think that because you you don't necessarily, you don't really see the eggs that flies lay on things before the maggots come. So that to me, I was like, okay, I can, I can see how people would think that. But then it had this picture of barnacles becoming a goose. And I was like, that, how would you get, how would you work that math out in your head with barnacles and geese are not the same thing at all. These are obviously barnacles (laughs) that look kind of like geese. Have you ever been bitten by a goose? No. Because that might lead you to associate them with the scratchy horror of barnacle. (laughs) Of 
<laughs> okay. A goose bite is mean and hard and they have serrated little tiny teeth. So yeah. I could see where, I mean, it's still a long walk. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, this makes total sense, but I could maybe see where that might be the connective tissue of that thinking. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. I generally give geese a wide berth because especially when they're nesting, they can be really kind of aggressive. And, and so, uh, not so much with the geese, but yeah, it was baffling to me as a child. So thanks to all the folks who have sent us various links about barnacles becoming geese, which is not a thing that they actually do. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And we are also all over social media at Missing History. So that is our Facebook and our Twitter and our Pinterest and our Instagram. You can come to our website, which is MissingHistory.com, where you will find uh, show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever done and a searchable archive of all of the episodes that have ever existed on the show. And you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever else you might get podcasts. So come and visit us or subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple. Affordable. Reliable. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.